hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Imaginary Movie Podcast, a podcast where we watch a movie and then we talk about it. My name's David. My name's Sam. My name's Chris. And Chris is our very first inaugural podcast guest from another podcast. Uh, that's Ooh. like, if you've watched the Marvel films <laughs> and all the parallel universes, that's like a parallel universe guy. And Chris is uh, the host <laughs> of... With his wife, uh, measuring the score, a podcast uh, very similar to ours. I don't know if you want to maybe give us a little bit more accurate information, Chris, because obviously I don't know anything. <laughs> sure. Um, uh, measuring the score is a podcast where we watch films and then we listen to the film scores as well, and we talk about it. You know, and I'm a uh, film composer. I've been doing it for almost twenty years. My wife, who unfortunately cannot be here today, uh, she is a musician, so it's a nice, nice way to have you know bounce our opinions of film scores off of each other, and you know we we look up a lot of research and everything else. We just try to have a lot of fun with what we're doing and try to open it up to everyone to get a better sense of film scores. And basically, that's that's pretty much it, you know. We just we just talk about a bunch of film scores in the movies and you know and try to compare uh, if the film score still works for the movie or not and we have like three different criteria that we go against and you know does it work for the film is there a favorite scene or score and you know what could have been done differently. What an excellent introduction, Chris. Um, and I would agree. And it's um, <laughs> it's a fun podcast to listen to because Chris has so many more credentials than us in actually working in the industry. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's really interesting to listen to as like a, a sort of insider in a certain way. Um, and there's so there's so many podcasts out there. I mean, you could say this of ours as well, but it's kind of just people rambling and not really having like the knowledge and insight again <laughs> coherently. You could say that of ours, but I think your podcast, Chris, as a as a definite listen because you do have that knowledge and you're kind of like getting into like the feeling of the music, all these things that I don't necessarily think about. So it's it's definitely worth a listen um, for any of our listeners out there. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, like I said, Sorry, we try to have fun, but the, but the only downside is we we don't have a lot of uh, audio clips while we're talking about the score, so it's really me a lot of the times humming, <laughs> which is something we're trying to work on. <laughs> <It works. laughs> Honestly, Chris, I think it works really well uh, <laughs> generally. <laughs> and today, today, this is a very special episode for me. This is like one of those the reasons that we started the podcast episodes because we are we're doing. We're doing the film, the film, one of my favorite, probably my favorite movie uh, to talk about, which is Fellowship of the Ring. And I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Yes, that's right. In 2021, we're going to weigh in on this. And we're quite close to the 20th anniversary of this of this movie, we should say, uh, which is just absolute happenstance. Um But we're quite close to the 20th anniversary of the Fellowship of the Ring. And um, it's kind of Sam's raison d'etre to talk about this first Lord of the Rings movie at incredible length and forever and every day. Yes, welcome to this six-hour <laughs> podcast. We didn't tell you, Chris, sorry, but you're locked in now for the rest of the day. There we go. Oh, well, you know. He might get technical oh, difficulties, Sam. Uh, but <laughs> let's start with, um, maybe let's talk about our history of the film. So I want to start with you, Chris, and maybe tell us about when you first saw this and what your relationship with maybe the Lord of the Rings trilogy is generally. Like, just briefly, you know, just sort of, you know, however you feel to tell us. Well, I mean, with, you know, just the Lord of the Rings series itself <clears throat> started really mainly for, I want to say The Hobbit, the animated, I think it was the Don Bluth animated 
film, that was the first introduction to, you know, the, the Tolkien universe, but which my, my brother growing up was always a big Lord of the Rings fan and the Hobbit, especially. And then when it was announced that this movie was being made, I remember it was a huge thing. You know, they're like, Oh, it's Peter Jackson. He's got Elijah Wood. He's got Ian McKellen. He's got, he's got Sir Christopher Lee coming in. And it was, it was huge to the point where it almost, you know, one of the big things that everybody was always talking about was that it almost bankrupt New Line Cinema. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, New Line Cinema at the time was, you know, uh, that that was one of my, I, I don't know if everybody has this, you know, if they have like a certain studio that they kind of have a fondness for, is, you know, they, they, they put out, you know, these certain films, you're like, oh, yeah. That was New Line Cinema was mine. I mean, because they put out, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. They put out um, another horror franchise, Critters. Uh, but they they put out a lot of really good films, though. I mean, uh, Seven was one of them, which you know, great film. Has Wonderful Howard film. Shore. Yeah, who who Howard Shore scored Seven, who also scored Lord of the Rings, and they they put out a lot of great films and it was like each time they put out something it was usually you know they were showing better and better so when it was announced that new line was the one backing this whole thing or they were they were you know really putting out the most money into it i was like okay this has you know the potential to be either really good or really bad <laughs> so then it, then it was like all right now i now i need to read the books and everything else and that's when it really started hitting home for me and then once the films came out, I mean, it just blew me away just like it did everybody else, you know. It's a very singular series of films, I think, like culturally. And we talk about um, sort of cultural osmosis quite a lot on the podcast, Chris, uh, which is a term we use for when you aren't maybe directly familiar with something's source material, but you're very intimately familiar with like the results of it. And Lord of the Rings, I think, kind of epitomises that. Um, so I didn't see the first movie in the cinema, uh, but I saw the second and the third, and then read the books following that. I don't know where you sit, Sam. Well, I, I don't really remember, to be honest. I think I went to see the cinema um, to see this, but um, how, how old must I have been? About... 11. 11 jesus that's a long time ago so <laughs> so so to, for me though this is one of those films that certainly like as i've got older i've just become more and more obsessed with you know i you can kind of buying the making of books level of, of obsession and stuff like that and it's and it's it's just one of those things that i love the film as it is and i love the you know all the things that, 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 that they've done on screen but it's it's like um, for me the fa the fascination is the fact that this film is actually any good and that it works <laughs> and that you and that they managed to make three 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 hour movies of this scale you know like you know that everything that's going on everything that's firing all these different things that have have to happen for it all to come together and just from that point of view i am just fascinated with this with with these films because i just can't it, it shouldn't work it, it shouldn't peter jackson the guy who directed the frighteners what why is he why, why, <laughs> yeah, why is exactly he? That, that's what i was about to say i mean it it he he was a pretty much unknown director at that time i mean yeah he yeah. did the frighteners and he did uh, uh, you know, a lot of low-budget horror films. I mean, especially the, the the weird puppet whatever that was, Meet the Feebles. 
I mean, yes. that was that was insanity. I mean, how how would a studio look at that and look at his credentials and go, yeah, let's trust him with this, or let's let's almost bankrupt our company on you know on this guy right here. And, and, and he, then <laughs> there must have been something. And then to do it in this far far away land called New Zealand, you know, <laughs> which doesn't <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> didn't really have the infrastructure like it really famed 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 Hollywood studio in New Zealand. <laughs> like it's amazing. It's an amazing achievement, and obviously, it's one of those films that is, I think, for like, well, at least at least for at least for us, you know, <laughs> three white guys is like a really culturally important movie, <laughs> and, and you know, there's. There's stuff we could talk about later about representation about this movie, which is definitely um, a bit dodgy. But like, there's just something. Well, there's something about being being heard and being seen on screen, Sam. And pretty much every character is a white man, <laughs> so like, I feel pretty heard and represented on screen. Yes, yes. So that is it's definitely an issue, isn't it? Um, so I'm going to read a plot summary for the. Um, I, I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't seen Lord of the Rings or even heard of it, but let's let's do our let's do our as is tradition. Podcast to you. A meek hobbit from the Shire and eight companions set out on a journey to destroy the powerful One Ring and save Middle Earth from Dark Lord Sauron. Um, in terms of people who hasn't seen this movie, my son, who's five, obviously hasn't watched Lord of the Rings yet, far too young. But I have been talking to him about it, and most of the um, the kind of exposure that he's had is through the music because I'll have that on and I'll be kind of playing, you know, the it, it, on YouTube they have these like four-hour compilations of just shy music <laughs> and he sits and listens to them going to sleep and it's like I've, it warms my heart to hear him listen to the, you know, the Shire theme as he's drifting off to bed. I think it's a lovely, that is fantastic. It's a lovely thing. But the the music, the music of this film is, is extraordinary. We'll get into it properly later on, but I just think all of that as a starting point, I think it's such a... It's such a way in because there's just so much going on just on the music, never mind all the other production that we've got as well. Well, it's it's the one thing that you, you first hear. You first hear the score. And, you know, we talk about it a lot on our podcast. A, a good score can make or break a film. And it's it's the one thing that I always try to stress to everybody. And, I mean, you know, we'll get more into it later on. But, yeah, it, it's the first thing that draws you in is the music. You know, and, and then the story starts up of, you know, the one ring and everything else. But the first thing that draws you in is the first little subtle strings and the orchestra mm-hmm. swelling in the way it does. So, yeah. It's amazing. Well, in my mind, this movie kind of like can be split quite, quite, uh, what's the word, quite concisely into about four chunks. I don't know if you guys will agree with me. Yeah, Dave, how kind of are we going to in- tackle this? <laughs> the first chunk, the first chunk is kind of like, in my mind, is the most risky piece of cinema that Peter Jackson has ever done, which is the introduction of the like the War of the Ring, the which we get earlier on. Mm. The prologue, I think, is the riskiest. Like so many people are turning this off, like <laughs> ten minutes into this movie. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like in in is it two thousand and one? This movie in two thousand and one, so many people are like ah, not for me. Like yeah. you have this prologue and you have this, and I think it works phenomenally. And I think because of the score, you've got this quite dramatic sort of beat going on behind you. You've got the Lord of the Rings, the ring theme going on in the background of the scene. You've got the, you know, you know, uh, nine rings to rule them all, blah, blah, blah. One ring to rule them all, um, one ring to bind them. And our co-host Joe would know this verbatim, but I am not him. Um, but, like, you've got this wonderful, like, 
um, setup of what has happened previous to the start of this movie. Yeah, it's it's quite an amazing piece of um, of, of cinema, isn't it? To to drill down in eight minutes or so, I think it is. Like this is all the context that you need to know. And by the way, this is like one percent of it because because <laughs> Tolkien wrote thousands and thousands of years that you know needlessly, Silmarillion, oh, and all this all this stuff. Like they managed to drill it down, and I think in a way that's so compelling because straight away you're you're you've you're kind of transported to this new world. You're given you're given all this information, and it's kind of scattered a little bit, but you you it all centers around this obviously this 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 one ring. And then from there, it just sets up the movie in a way that I think if you didn't have it, and I think they were pretty close. I think it was Fran Walsh who managed to basically write this, you know, just in her head and had it all there. And the result of that, I think, sets up the movie in a way that if you didn't have this, it would be like a whole ride. Imagine trying them trying to introduce all of this stuff in exposition scenes oh. <laughs> every, every two minutes for half an hour. Like it would be exhausting. I write more than a paragraph. I start getting tired. There's no talent. I mean, I cannot even grasp, you know, the amount for this just just for this one, just for this one movie right here. I mean, there that is insanity. And this movie, like we said, does maybe the most heavy lifting of of the series uh, in terms of the films because you've got this instruction and you know, and I think that the cinematography shouldn't go without a say here because I think that like there's a real there's a real um uh, what's the word um like there's a real intent behind the cinematography so you've got the scene with the the rings that go to the elves and you've got the scene of the rings that go to the men you've got the scene that rings that go to the dwarfs and like all of it is shot in exactly the same way and it's shot in a very mm-hmm. like clear way and we establish this kind of like hierarchy of the rings that even if you're not really listening, you kind of understand this all boils down to like there is this one thing that we need to pay attention to in terms of a plot <laughs> MacGuffin. Like it's really clear, like there's this ring, it's kind of important, and we're like, All right, okay, that that sounds reasonable. Okay, I'm listening. Right. And and even from the very beginning, I mean the whole the whole film, you said the cinematography, the whole film is beautiful. I mean, it, even even now it is still a beautifully shot film, but even the very beginning, the prologue, you know, even though it's it's war times, it's a really dark looking, it's you know very grim, it still looks beautiful. There there is a certain element to it that you're just like, wow, this looks gorgeous. <laughs> even though you you've got Elrond, you know, it's got dirt all covered, all you know, they're standing inside of a volcano, it still looks gorgeous. You know, there there were still moments, it's, you know, during this entire war there, you're just like, wow, that looks great. <laughs> yeah, I think so much of this comes from the work of Andrew, Andrew Lesney, who um, is a kind of real driving force behind the uh, the cinematography. Can I just read some of his previous movies? Because I was looking at this. We've got Babe. Mm. <laughs> We've got Babe, Pig in the City. <laughs> in, 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 in 98. Chris, Nothing Chris were, they, were they as big in the US as they were in the UK? Just out of interest. Uh, the, the first one was, not the second one. <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, I mean, nothing, nothing against those movies per se, but I'm just thinking of, you know, the, the probably the grandest of grand mythology yeah. that's going to be told on cinema. And you get the guy, that and does, we get this New yeah. Zealand guy from who did Babe. Like, wow, that's a leap. Again, it, it, the studio had to have 
you know, complete faith because you've got, you know, the cinematographer here, you've got Peter Jackson, and it's just like, I just want to be in that boardroom and they're sitting there going, yeah, this is going to be a good idea. <laughs> I just want to be the one guy going, what? Well, <laughs> are you sure about this? <laughs> well, from the, from the trivia, certainly from the production history, I think this was like, it's quite a lot, well, I say quite a long, not long in terms of time, but certainly like, I think this was shopped around a lot. Because uh, you say it was New Line who ended up funding it. Um, I yep. think it was initially a co-production between Spotlight and is it Spotlight and Miramax, mm-hmm. and like basically both of them were like, "We're only going to give you enough money to make one movie." And Peter Jackson said, "Well, no, I want to make two. Yeah. It only became three when the studio said, "Actually, we think this would make three. And it, I like, and well, it's not an unprecedented amount of money for a movie, but it is a phenomenal amount of money to make three movies shooting back to back we should say mm-hmm. so this wasn't like we'll release one and we'll see how it does this we're going to film all of it <laughs> and right. we're going to really really bank on these being the biggest trilogy that ever is made which is kind of interesting in a and film production kind of point of view basically pray and hope that everybody likes the first one when it comes out <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, uh, again. It's terrifying. I, again, I want to be the one guy in the boardroom going, what? We're doing what now? Uh, are you sure about this? <laughs> because on paper, Good. because on paper, Chris, like Tolkien, and I've read Tolkien, and again, our friend Joe is kind of the, the resident expert, but I've read Tolkien and like, there's a lot there that's not good. Like, there's a lot in those stories that, that, that Peter Jackson, I think, absolutely like... 100% knew what to include and what not to include and like and but 999 times out of a thousand this idea does not work right you know what kills it you know what kills it it kills it if they don't get rid of Tom Bombadil at the at the very start of the first film because in the book I mean oh my good lord <laughs> it just goes on and on song after song and I'm just like I don't no please stop please stop and I think that I think that is the single. I think it's the single greatest thing about this movie. There's, there's, you know, all the. It's the adaptation. It's to take these, you know, mammoth novels, absolutely huge, full of really good like backstory and you know the, the fabric of of the Middle Earth and all this stuff, but they kind of don't need as much of that because they can do a lot of it on screen and through the music and what else. But to to be able to get rid of all the stuff they don't need and to be able to condense this down into even still a three hour movie three times is like super impressive i think uh it is peter jackson but it's Fran walsh and philip Boynes as well who who just they must just ha- have had this vision this vision of what the film should be um and then uh, you know translating that onto the screen is a whole other thing but you've got to start with a, a strong adaptation because how many films have we seen from books to movies i'm just thinking of chronicles of narnia for example really really poor film you know and like because you don't have that you don't have that yeah. similar vision of, of really transporting it. Yeah, and with with Lord of the Rings, I mean, like like I just talked about before, I, I knew Lord of the Rings. I saw the animated films. I, I was a big fan of those. But you still, 2001, special effects hadn't really, they have gotten a lot better, but we had never seen anything truly on the scale of like, lord of the rings and 
when it was announced, it, there was still a certain level of hesitancy. You know, now we're just like, oh, Lord of the Rings is coming out. Okay, cool. Uh, but at, at that time, it was, you know, Lord of the Rings is coming out. And it's like, okay, how is this going to work? How is this going to look? And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure this whole episode is going to be going to be like, wow, Peter Jackson really pulled it off. But, I mean, he, that's that's just that's, that's the best way <laughs> he, you can describe this, though. Is, he pioneered is, he so really many did. things in the industry. He really did. Yeah. I, I have to give him the, the credit um for this i mean yeah fran walsh you know like you were talking about it really was the the main head for the screen but peter jackson was the one who had to put it all together make sure it was understandable and make sure for people like myself who had never read the book understood what was going on understood the backstory and made you fall for these characters make you have some kind of emotion for these characters and I mean, and, and he had to make sure everything was, you know, the right cast, and you know, and I think we need to get into the cast because <laughs> the the cast well, is the one thing absolutely. that is insane. Well, I mean, let's talk about the cast now, then, shall we? Before yeah. we get to my, my favorite <laughs> segment. Uh, let's start with the Hobbits. Let's start with the Hobbits. So uh, we've got Elijah Wood as as Frodo, right. obviously. Again, anyone listening to this knows the cast of the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, and I think I mean this may be a, uh, a an out there opinion. I think Elijah Wood is actually probably the weakest member of the original cast. I don't mean that in a horrible way. I really, really don't. I just think he's asked to do the least. And he does the most workmanlike job. I don't know where you guys come down on this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think I think he's he's got a difficult job because he kind of has to be. He's got a lot. I mean, he does. He he carries. You know, he bears the ring. He bears. He's a ring bearer, and he needs to do that role in the film, and he needs to do that like himself as well as as the actor. All that pressure is on him to be the one who has to be. He's got to, he's got to be funny. He's got to be charming. He's got to be pretty like emotive and like it's a lot of hard mental work whereas <clears throat> mary and pippin they get to just you know dance around and kind of <laughs> throw things th- throw apples or orcs for, for for a lot of the film <clears throat> i think the thing that the problem you have though i think is much more apparent later on when he becomes just super whiny and you're like <laughs> oh please not another yeah. scene of him having a mental breakdown and sam picking him up come on like it's just let's move things on a little bit but I, I, I don't know. I, I love, I love Elijah Wood in this, and I love Sam, and I love that relationship they have. Um, and I think it, I think it so reflects when you watch some of the making of it because I'm a massive nerd who has. You see, like they've got that same relationship off screen, and they're all kind of having a laugh and and joking. And there was this off screen fellowship as well, and especially with the Hobbits, which I think is a great thing. And we, you see that on screen. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I, 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 I have to agree with Sam on this one, because I mean, I, with with Elijah Wood, like later on in the sequels, it was even though even though he was kind of whining and everything else, to to put on that performance, you know, even still having to do that to put yourself into that that mental anguish that he was having to go through, that that is still you know an amazing feat, you know, to to make you feel. Like okay, shut up, stop whining. To to make you feel that still takes a lot to get to that. But with with the first one, with the Fellowship of the Ring, though, I think he he really really sold it because he goes from this 
pretty much happy-go-lucky hobbit, you know, who's enjoying the, you know, the time of his life. He's got his best friend, Sam, and he's, he's going to visit his, his uncle. And, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's just going about all of a sudden this, basically this evil almost is thrust upon him. And now he has to deal with this. And you see him go from the happy-go-lucky to, I've got to take charge of this. I, you know, this is this is now my problem, and I, you know, how do I deal with it? And you, you see that in his face. You see that in, you know, every emotion of him. So I, I, I got to say, I, I say Elijah Wood really pulled it off in this film. And I would, to I me, would agree with you, Chris. To me, Elijah is a good this actor. film. Yeah, in <laughs> well, this I'm not sure I'd go that far. <laughs> um, I think in this in this film, especially in the trilogy, and I think Elijah Wood is like a, I think what I usually term as a perfectly good actor, like an actor who's got good range, who knows what he's doing, who is perfectly capable, who may be like never. I can't imagine Elijah Wood ever reaching that kind of leading man status, largely because there's a ceiling on this performance, which we see in the second and third portions of this trilogy. I will agree with you, Chris. I think In Fellowship, which is my favourite of these movies, without a doubt, like I think Elijah Wood perfectly, perfectly captures the kind of like um, the reluctance but the bravery of the Frodo character. That scene, yeah. Elrond, the, the Elrond, uh, Council of Elrond, you know, when he when he's saying, "I will, I will take the ring," and everyone's shouting like, "It's." And, you know, you see Gandalf's face and he's just like, no, he's, but but he knows, he knows you've got to have someone. I think that's, I I kind of, I, yeah, I think Elijah Wood is pulling it off. Yeah. Um, speaking of Gandalf, though, like, where do you even begin with a character like this? <laughs> yeah, Ian McKellen comes in. Oh, man. Oh, by the way, you're you're going to be the the wizard, you know, the wizard of, of the Lord of the Rings, how do you even begin to, like, channel that, to turn that into a character that's going to be well useful on screen? Thank God it wasn't Sean Connery. My <laughs> Lord. Yeah, that, that's what I have in and my, my notes. Yeah, it was Thank nearly God Sean Connery. Thank God he said Connery. no. <laughs> uh, he, he said it was offered $10 million per film for the uh, role of Gandalf. He turned it down because he didn't understand the story. Yeah. That... And My the goodness. the Hollywood sort of background on that, because I'm a bit of a Sean Connery, um, not apologist perhaps, but uh, certainly a fan. Uh, he did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which was <laughs> another script he didn't understand, which I don't know if you've ever right. seen, Chris. But yeah, it's a terrible I've, I've mess. It's it, a I've really it. terrible movie. And he did that and basically got loads of like critical grief about it. So said, mm-hmm. well, that's it. I'm only doing movies that make sense to me. So he said no to Lord of the Rings because he'd done that terrible movie. I'm like, oh, all of the stars aligned because I think Sean Connery would have been... He would have been his character from Highlander in this mm-hmm. movie and it would have ruined the trilogy. I cannot. It's, it's quite amazing, isn't it? I cannot imagine cool. Gandalf played by any other anybody else but Ian McKellen. I mean, that that alone tells you right there. You, you can't picture Gandalf without picturing Ian McKellen. Even even when I see him as Magneto it's, later on, I still think of Gandalf. <laughs> it's 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 the weight, isn't it? It's the weight of the performance. It's mm-hmm. the ability to like uh, the transformation. It's also the costume and and the and the makeup and the is, cinematography. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, just just the way that he the way that he looks, the way that he he, he uh, holds himself in a scene, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like I don't think we've I don't think we've seen 
I'm not. I'm not suggesting it's like a massively Oscar-winning performance in that sense, in, in the way that it's like channeling. But I think it, just in terms of embodying a character, I don't think we've seen a, a performance like that since. Which is, where it just feels complete, as you say, Chris. Like you mm-hmm. couldn't imagine anyone playing him, and that that is a that's a real. It's not always the case. No, it's not always the case. <laughs> no, you know? no. I mean, with the, with Ian McKellen, it was just like it was. Just, as soon as you see him on screen, it was just like, for me. It, I knew from the animated film and everything else, but I know some people that had never seen or heard or read anything about Lord of the Rings. And as soon as they saw it, they felt, you know, right at home. They're like, oh, okay, this guy's cool. <laughs> and I mean, it just, to, to for someone to never seen Lord of the Rings or have anything to do with it, also automatically feel at ease with this one character. That, that you know, that says a lot about Ian McKellen as Gandalf. It's about the performance and maybe how comfortable McKellen is in this in this role, and obviously a lot of that. And we shouldn't we should we're going to mention this throughout, but a lot of that goes to the costume department, the prop department, the cinematographers. Like every scene, especially and and I think I don't know if I've said, but the Shire portion of this movie, the first hour, is probably the my favorite hour of film. Period. Like that's it. Like, and it's all. Gandalf being Gandalfy in all of the silly sets where you've got the mismatched props and Gandalf sort of wrinkling his brows and he's this forceful figure yet somehow like soft and kind and welcoming and there's this twinkling in his eyes. I really don't think there is a I don't really don't think there is a performance like that maybe captures the range that we get from Ian McKellen in the first even hour of this movie, really. Um, in cinema, generally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Let's talk a bit about the Shire. We can come to the rest of the cast as we as we get through because that's kind of the fellish. Oh no, we've got we've got Bilbo though, haven't we? We've got Ian Holm playing oh, Bilbo. Oh, yeah. Ian Holm. Oh performance. yes. I mean, it, I mean, Ian Holm is just amazing. Yeah, we we yeah. aren't reinventing the wheel no. to say Ian Holm was a fantastic actor. <laughs> no, but it's worth it's worth being said, isn't it? Well, just just watch him in Alien. <laughs> I mean, the the very first Alien movie, and I mean, he goes from he's not choking anyone with magazines, no, in thank, this, which thank is a, is a fault, that. I will say. <laughs> <laughs> I think if that happened, I mean, could you imagine that he just grabs Frodo and starts shoving a magazine down his throat, <laughs> like, no, you cannot have my ring, and he's like, okay, calm down, dude. <laughs> It's a very different movie, isn't it? I think yeah. that, that was um, the Lord of the Rings that really Scott but, was going to direct, but unfortunately, <laughs> absolutely, it was much creepier, much much murderier. Um, but it's such a competent performance, and um, you mentioned Chris that obviously you grew up with the Hobbit, and and we grew up with the Hobbit as well. Like uh, I remember reading the book as a kid, and there was an animation of the Hobbit, I believe, mm-hmm. when we were kids. I, think, I can't remember who did it, uh, and we also used to go and see the play. Uh, there was a local playhouse that used to do The Hobbit every year. So w- when we were at school, when we were young kids, we would go and see The Hobbit play every year. Okay. So it's a, it's kind of like the Bilbo character out of every one of these movies is kind of the character I have the most wound up in in terms of like my own personal kind of like uh, history. And Ian Holm, I think, encapsulates that um, sprightly kind of like, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the words. They're failing me, but Ian Holm really, really encapsulates Bilbo from The Hobbit, but in this Lord of the Rings movie. If that make again, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah he's a, he's he's a charming figure, isn't he? And he and he manages to 
because because you because presumably you've you've already got like a vision of your head of 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 um of of Bilbo because probably more people maybe read The Hobbit as as it's a kids book as well it's a bit more accessible so it works so well and then as we see like the bits where he then turns and this is these are the bits of of Ian McKellen of Ian Holmes excuse me that I love is when he turns because he wants he doesn't want to give the ring oh away. yeah you know he's looking at the it, range with the that, range that, that lovely of meme Ian of him Holmes. like that. Hmm, why should I give it away? Like he's he just he's just doing a great job of having this lovely light little Bilbo Baggins toting around, and also the ring has infected him. He is infected with this with this poison, and he's not able to give it up easily. And that's a great it's a great dynamic. It's a great dynamic for your for your main characters starting off the movie. It really sets things up, and it sets the tone. And obviously, all the other things that happen comes from the very first part of this mm-hmm. film in the Shire. Definitely. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that because it, it just really shows, I mean, you, you really hit, you know, hit the mark right there. I mean, he goes from this very charming, you know, just Bilbo, just like Elijah Wood. And then it goes into this, he takes kind of a dark turn, you know, with the ring and that's when you see what the ring has done to him and everything else. And then again, it goes to back to the E. McKellen, how, you know, how he can change just like that too when he, he makes Bilbo give him the ring and, you know, the the shadow looms over him and everything else. I love that. That was, like, one of my favorite moments when, you know, you see Gandalf, you see how powerful he is, and that's when Bilbo's like, okay, okay, here. You know, <laughs> just don't strike me down or yeah. nothing. Here, here's the ring, you know. And then Bilbo's like, oh, I feel better now. It's, you just, know. it's this amazing range of, of character that we get in a quite, again, quite a, like, subdued fun light segment and i think probably the most the lightest segment of this entire trilogy but certainly of this movie where like uh, like i mentioned to i'm not sure if i met it with on air or not but um when i went to sleep last night after watching the first hour of this my brain was just reverberating the shire theme back and forth in my head because that is my happy place yep. Oh, it's a bunch of people, a bunch of hairy people drinking beer. That's like my life. Great. I feel so at home right now. Um, You're too tall to be a hobbit, Dave, though, unfortunately. I am too tall, but I do live in a shire, so I feel like I should get a pass on that. Let's talk about the shire. Let's talk about some production stuff, because there's, there's, there's actually a making of the shire, which is an extraordinary task and we there's far too much to get into now but there's just there's one fact there's one fact that i i want to i want to mention which is you know the tree on top of um bilbo's house so they put this tree there and it's kind of like being like ropes and steel cables and everything but then they had they they basically i think they use something like a million or some ridiculous number of fake leaves which they had to individually (laughs) put on to the branches to get it to look like this tree and i think that yeah that 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 sums up for me the attention to detail that that we see in the shire especially as a set as an opening gambit of like we need to sell this we need to sell (laughs) that this place is real and we've also got this weight of expectation by people who've read the book of thinking is it going to look like what i imagined in the story and that's a heck of a lot of pressure. Never mind making a new film that's ne- oh. that, that people haven't imagined before. This is one of the most beloved books of all time, and they had to get it right. And I think they did an extraordinary job of the this opening, Let, the set basically. You know, the start. Let's talk about these leaves for a moment. Could you just imagine the, the you know one of the the 
crew members that had to do this calls his wife and he's like, "So what'd you do today, honey? Oh, I put out you know a million leaves on a tree." Well, you're getting paid for it. It's so. not even the worst one. It's not even the it's not even the worst one. The worst one is there's again what's the making of? There's a, there's two guys who for four years basically sat uh, for two yeah four years. It was like four years because they had to prep the preparation before they sat making chainmail piece link by link oh. these plastic links and, it, and you can't uh, I, I can't no. even imagine what the number is of no. how many pieces of chain mail they had to make <laughs> no. but it's literally and they just sit there all day just ding ding no. ding, ding, ding ding putting these links together I, I mean come on I could not do that what <laughs> I could not I do it's that. something like it's something like the, the number I looked at there are 19,000 individual costumes in these movies and obviously, like again, talking about the fellowship, like the numbers are skewed because it applies to the whole trilogy. But there are something like eighteen hundred pairs of Hobbit feet they used in this film. Yeah, and a lot of them, and most of those belong to Frodo and Sam. Right. Like most of them. <laughs> well, I know there was a there. Yeah, it was a, more than sixteen hundred pairs of latex ears and feet were used during the shoot because they. Uh, they keep, you know, because they kept taking them off, so they kept getting messed up and everything else. And yeah. uh, I know Dominic uh, Monaghan, uh, he had to lend a pair a couple, more than a couple of times because, <laughs> you know, everybody, it, they kept getting messed up or, you know, people were stealing them and stuff like that. <laughs> Could you imagine that? It was like, I, mean, it was like, I can't find my feet today. Oh, they were stolen. Here, here's mine. <laughs> and now, and now I've, got to phone, I've got to phone the foot guy who's <laughs> yeah. going to provide me with my new pairs of feet to be laboriously applied every morning. Like, oh, my. And, and so the, 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 the production side of this is just crazy. But the, the other thing, and then after this, we'll maybe move on to the, into Rivendell and all the other stuff and get into the rest of the cast. But the, let's not forget to mention the forced perspective shots. That we that we are that we oh, are forced. Yes. The film is forced to use some of the most impressive practical effects. <clears throat> yes. I think we've seen in the last thirty or forty years. I can't even get my head around how they did some of. It. I've watched. I've watched the documentaries. I've I've looked at it. I just I can't figure out that they managed. Well, the to idea make... that they had to make Gandalf's hat as a as a prop as a piece of costume. Okay, that's not totally straightforward. We've got to think about all of this. We've got to distress the fabric. We've got to make it look like it's been worn. Then we have to make three or four more of them. We have to make one which is scaled so that when Bilbo holds it up, it's scaled to what a hobbit should be, which is about four foot seven or something daft like that. And then we also have to make several other in the middle bits for the shots in between. It's absolutely mad. And then to shoot it and not have it all come apart. I crazy. insane. I almost forgot about the force perspective. You know the the force perspective. I can't even get this out. <laughs> no, I almost <laughs> forgot about that because it, it it watching it. I was like, because starting off, you would just see you know Frodo by himself, you know, sitting there looking at the camera or looking off to the side, talking to Gandalf and everything else. But then when you see like a wide shot, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. They're 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 tiny. <laughs> they're tiny compared to Gandalf. <laughs> they're little. And I yeah. was like, oh wow. And it was like, oh well, well how are they pulling it off? And I'm like, you I even watched the the making of and I, I still even today, I mean this is two thousand and twenty one. Two thousand one and I'm still going. Wow, that still looks amazing. That's still very it's, impressive. It's a, how they did it's it. a testament yeah. to how 
well it pays off. And I, I can't help but feel if this movie had been made three or four years later, they would have CGI'd oh, it yeah. and it would look terrible now. And like so I think it was really made in that kind of like golden bubble of CGI is not good enough to do this, right. so we're gonna have to do it practically. So they did it. So we can watch it now and be like, this still looks flawless. Yeah. And yeah. that's like a gift. Instead, for us. we're going to build massive desks. We're going to build these tables on rigs right. and they're going to be split. Like, because there's some of them that are kind of like that on their different layers. Yeah. And, and then we're going to have people sit and the, the person has to look at a wall rather than the character, the, the actor, the actors. And you're like, my God, definitely they would see this because it's so much easier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's easier for the actors, it's easier for the prop people, like the whole thing. And. But yeah, well, the, it holds the thing, up. The thing about the thing about practical compared to CGI. Now we had this on our podcast when we did the Mummy. The CGI does not hold up. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, the Mummy is a great film, but the CGI does not hold up. The same with you know, you know this this set of films here. It, it they still look great and everything else but they do not hold up over the test of time. Whereas practical, we're sitting here still talking about how amazing that is. You know, there there's so many shots in The Hobbit where they didn't do the practical and they did the CGI, and it's nowhere near as good as the original Lord of the Rings. I mean, I, mean, I don't want to get you know too far off the series and start talking about a completely different series but when you look at the hobbit compared to lord of the rings there's a lot that does not work with the hobbit that worked better in the Phillips of the ring because they went more practical those barrels i think that was those, yeah. those oh, barrels, God, barrels down in in the oh, hobbit you know like don't what even the... this isn't the podcast for that so. oh yeah no vigo mortensen that was one of the things he did have a problem with the films later on he when he you know, agreed to it. He said, "Oh, you know, it was going to be more practical. There was going to be very little CGI." And when you see that in the Fellowship of the Ring, yeah, there is a lot of CGI in the in the film, but there is a lot more practical than there is CGI. And he said, by the end, by the time they did the third film, it becomes so much more CGI and less practical to the point where he did not enjoy it. He did not like it. Yeah. So I think that kind of says something right there that practical. You know, still holds up to the test of time, whereas CGI and and digital kind of you know it's in some spots it does it, especially in some, some spots it does with the advent of kind of like you know modern HD TVs, like everything that's made more than ten years Definitely. ago, kind of like has this flashlight sh- shined upon it to be like, are you actually good? Is the CGI really excellent? <laughs> like we're now watching on 1080p, right, right, and like. We can see the lines, so like it really does make a difference. Right. right. Shall we? Um, we've we we have. I mean, there's there's a massive cast. We probably will get to all of them, but I think we let's let's maybe fast forward a little bit because we get this great sequence. I, I, mean, I agree, Dave, with you in terms of that first hour of the movie is is almost like I could just sit down and watch that watch that first hour after leave the prancing about pony, twice a year. and then I'm kind of like I'm just feel satisfied. It's just such a beautiful sequence in a, and and we move you know with these the the nazgul and all the i mean like just ex- extraordinary visuals and to get all that and 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 this you know the the horses it with the with the moonlight and the, the the fog and all this stuff it's just so amazingly shot and then we go to the prancing pony where we um and and kind of that's 
this this kind of uh, the, the death of their innocence i think these little hobbits innocence because they come from the shire and all things are nice and then they're being chased by these dark riders these terrifying you know uh, horseback and it just it's it's such a it's such a real shift and you really get into like this is the real meat of the film now is them being pursued and chased and harried and they can't get away um from there's from... a real the real tension to the movie at this point and um like you said it comes from it goes from you know mary and pippin being like they do it in pints and there's this great kind of like <laughs> they're just really into like being in a pub they love it uh which i get um, i'm getting one you, you kind of go from that and you get like mary and pippin we should say mary and pippin adds so much comedic relief to this movie which it so desperately needs we get that later on when they're going to they're going heading towards Riverdale with um, Aragorn. Oh, and, and like the whole breakfast sequence. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> well, like we had, yes, we had one breakfast, but what about second breakfast? <laughs> but, but does he know about does he know about elevensies and like afternoon tea and like supper Lunch and like, like you know midnight snack? Pippin. And, and he's Pippin, like, and Pippin's like, I don't think he does. And they're like, oh my god, this is horrible. What are we doing here? You know, it's a real G- G- Gimli and Legolas also kind of serve this purpose as well. But like, yeah. it's quite, um, it's quite remarkable how funny this movie is. Like, it shouldn't it, again. It shouldn't be as funny as it is because you've you've got this real serious end of the world, everything that's got to you know evil dark forces and all that. But throughout the film, we get so much comedic relief from a range of different characters. And I just think like the tone of that is spot on. It is spot on to to add just occasionally just a little bit of humour that just lightens all of this doom and gloom and horror, you know, because otherwise it it could be so dull. Well, the one thing I'm going to add on that is uh, Wes Craven, you know, director of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, a lot of horror films, once said that to engage your audience or to keep your audience entertained you want to give them a breather and that's basically what mary and pippin are they're there to kind of make you laugh kind of feel a little bit better like oh okay great oh and here's the nazgul again and now we're gonna make you laugh and something bad and now we're gonna make you laugh and something bad again and that's what they are they're 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 the breather they're there to you know like with legolas and gimli they're there to you know kind of make you feel a little bit better make you calm down just a little bit before you get back into the yeah, yeah, you get a break from the tension a little bit. You 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 kind of calm down just for a moment, and it's not just steadily hitting you because if if it's steadily repeatedly hitting you and it's steadily coming after you, you kind of get to the point where you 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 get tired of it and you don't have the same reaction to it. You kind of lose it a little bit, and it's like it doesn't have the same effect to it as you know. So yeah, those those moments there, they're still they are hilarious, and they you know and and Billy Boyd and um. Uh, Dominic Monaghan, they they really, you know, they really pulled it off there by you know giving the audience that that breather for a moment. But you know, you you have to have those moments in there because if not, you're you're gonna tire your audience out. It's just a bit. Uh, you don't want to do that. that not not a, not with a film this scope. Yeah, yeah. Three hours to go. <laughs> like someone throw a pie yeah. and tell a joke. Like that's <laughs> yeah. That's what we need, isn't it? Somebody talk about second breakfast. We're good. Come on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so after that, we kind of get to um, to Rivendale, and we we kind of meet all of the rest of our characters. Uh, we get reintroduced, reintroduced to Elrond, who is a a massive favourite of mine. 
what a serious dude in a movie. Um, just as a sidebar. Hugo Weaving. Yeah, Hugo Weaving. I don't know if you guys have seen... Uh, <laughs> you should watch if you haven't. Uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, which is a Hugo, no, it's an Australian <laughs> movie starring Hugo Weaving as a drag queen who does a drag show across America. And okay. it's basically him and a bunch of drag queens driving this, like camper van across australia it's fantastic it's so <laughs> the opposite of this movie but it kind of reminds you definitely that this hugo weaving is an actor <laughs> like he can act <laughs> and the, the one thing too it's it from the very beginning of the movie all right so you you get this whole war sequence and then it goes to the shire and the only thing you really know is the story of the hobbits you know and it goes from you, you're kind of focused on Bilbo there for a moment, and you, you see a little bit of a, uh, uh, Frodo and everything, but then it goes to mainly Frodo and the rest of them. But never at one point do you feel like, well, no, 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 I want to know more about this person. You're you're focused on what's happening. You're still engaged in the story, and then when you get to uh, Rivendell, when when you get to that whole thing, you're you're having multiple stories going mm. off at one. At, at, you got an Aragon, you know. With his his um, uh, how do I how do I put this? Where he, he does not want to be king. He doesn't want to accept his fate, basically. And uh, but yet he still has the um, respect for it. You know, it's like um, when um, Sean Bean, the man who's ma- famous for dying just about everything. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> you know, he he's looking at the sword. You know, and yeah, <laughs> he's looking at the sword, and he he's basically disrespecting it. You know, Aragon, even though he does not want to accept his fate he he still has you know it's like hey you're disrespecting that what you know like chill out a little bit calm calm down buddy <laughs> you know yeah. you need to put the sword down yeah and, and then you get frodo going to see bilbo who looks like he's aged you know like 20 you know 80 years or something like that and it's like you really see the effect of the ring and that's when you get that whole moment where bilbo's face turns dark and he's like you know my precious you know it's like cool it's like whoa and it's like, what is the deal with this ring? It's, you know, that's when you really start to kind of like, okay, there's something even bigger and, you know, even more evil going on than what we really thought. You know, it's like what you saw with the Nazgul and everything else, that is nothing compared to what's, you know, lying ahead. Yeah. And that's that right there is really kind of a testament of what, you know, is what is going to happen, what's what's fixing to happen with these guys. And then you get the the whole council sequence where they're trying to figure out what to do. And it, the, the council stuff is like, it's it's like kind of like a, it, it really moves us into the politics, like almost like the geopolitics oh, yeah. of the Middle Earth. That's that's kind of where we're, um, where we're, we're brought to. And and you said, you said a minute ago in terms of like, we're very much focused on the Shire. We're not really, mm-hmm. it's about these hobbits. And they even say, don't they, we can go home now. Sam's like, well, we've done our job. Let's go. Right, right. See you later. Yeah. Uh, until actually we get to see the gravity of the situation. We get to see the kind of mm-hmm. the different races that are, that are through this in terms of the, the, the dwarfs and the, the elves. And then, and then I just, I love, I love that scene and it's so pivotal, <clears throat> I think to the whole movie, because if you don't set up why all this is important, what is going to happen if you don't um, get rid of the ring the stakes then become really low, I think, afterwards. And and you've got to do that, though, while also introducing all of these characters, all of this backstory, right. all of this interpersonal conflict that's going on as well. Like, it, sh- it shouldn't work. It shouldn't work, just like the rest <laughs> of this movie. But 
<laughs> it you mentioned really this off does. the top, it, like ninety nine percent of the time, this adaptation doesn't work. I will say that, like, a challenge for us at the end of the end of the podcast is think of an adaptation that's better than this, and I really think you'll struggle. Anyone listening to this or participating, um, because. They managed to marry all this up. We know who Aragorn is, kind of, by this point. Um, admittedly, we haven't got a lot of Legolas and Gimli and Sean Bean. We know who Elrond is from the pre- uh, prologue. We know who the Hobbits are. Like, There's an amazing amount of world building that goes into this movie where like, we don't have a lot of exposition. There's not a lot of scenes where we're sat down and told, like, you know, oh, this is what's going to happen. We're going to have to go to Mount Doom and blah, 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 blah. Like, It's things happening, which is really basic in movies but a lot of the time what i want to do is watch people do things <laughs> and, like, and this movie <laughs> right, achieves right, that right yeah this really is one of those movies where you learn as you go you know it's not one of those where it's going to spell it out with a crayon for you it's like oh no you're just going to figure it out as as we learn it so just <laughs> sit tight hold you know put your seatbelt on because we're going for a ride and that's basically what it is it's basically saying we're not going to hold your hand we're just going to figure it out as we figure it out so yeah just 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 bear with us just just go along with us yeah it's a great it's a great part and dave to your point about like they don't have those those many of those exposition scenes but the council of elrond really is is quite heavy on the exposition. It's the exposition scene, I think. But but exactly, mm-hmm. you need it. You need it because how else do you how else do you set up the rest of the, the, the for the a three-hour movie for a three-hour movie that forms one third of its story? I think one big mm. exposition dump is quite reasonable. It's like it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> it really is. And it, it doesn't feel like an exposition dump either. It feels like, you know, just part of the story. It just feels like what something has happened. Yeah. You never, during that entire sequence, you never sit there and go, oh, okay, just hurry up and get it over with. We understand. We got to do it. You never, because there are a lot of times in other films where you have that moment where you're just like, okay, this is the story moment. It's like, okay, now I get it. I understand what's going on. But not with this film. It, it Not with this scene. It's, it's, you know, it just feels like, right there in a the moment and then after it happens they're like oh that was the exposition scene oh, it okay. feels <laughs> it feels very organic and the whole coming together of the fellowship i think that's what i think that's what i was looking for was organic but it's just I can't i'm, get the, the, I'm it, the guy who knows words it's my thing yeah. um i don't it's, know anything it, about no words it goes um, to your point chris about like you mentioned the comedy and and the you know you kind of a, the up and the down the a and the b you know you, to, to, to let the film breathe mm-hmm. and i think because you've had so much effective action and you've had a little bit of downtime you've had a little bit of humor you're kind of like ready just to sit down and just to you know just to get what let this wash over you in terms of the the wider context of what's happening and so that pacing issue and this is one of the other things with this film the pacing is extraordinarily good and that's where two towers fails for me drastically because it's like there's a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah like, Sam, oh, i've God. got one word one word for you here ents ents, ents. ruin oh. any kind of pacing or tension you could possibly imagine um, <laughs> oh man but in this film it, it it doesn't have that and i think that's a real te- that's a real that's a real tightness in the script to be able to get that right and balance it all out it is a, and yeah it establishes the what i refer to in my head as kind of like the proto fantasy kind of um baseline where you've got your fellowship, the fellowship of the ring is kind of the basis for like every fantasy novel written since then. <laughs> um, where <laughs> yeah. you know yeah, you've got your hero who's not your typical hero. You have got Frodo who's the ring bearer, 
you've got Sam Wise and you've got Mary and Pippin who are kind of like they're children really in the context of this story. Uh, you've got Aragorn, who's kind of like the, the the dethroned king. You've got Sean Bean, and we will talk a lot more about Sean Bean, my you know countryman, <laughs> my uh, you know patron saint of my county. Uh, I don't know if you know much about the UK, Chris, but uh, Sean Bean's from the same part of the UK as me, and therefore uh, like he's a kind of like a national hero. Um, you've got <laughs> you've got John Rhys well, Davies. He's a fantastic actor. Oh, I'll, I'll give you this. He really is. He. And just about everything I've seen him in has never been like, oh man, that's Sean Bean in here. No, no, no. He is a fantastic actor. He's he seems like he's a great person from everything I've seen. He seems like a very humble person, and he he was one of my favorite characters in uh, The Martian when he was in that. I mean, because they even mentioned Gr- the Lord great, of the Rings in there, you know. And I think great it was Jeff was like, oh, I'm going to be Elrond. Um, yeah, that's that's the previous it. episode, it by the way. Which you can go back and listen oh, to. Oh, really? <laughs> us. You can go back and listen to us talk about how great Sean Bean is. Stop. I feel stop like trying to sell the podcast. Plug I feel like we've done about, about six Sean Bean movies. I could could be wrong, but we've done a lot. Um, but Sean Bean as Boromir, we'll get into. Man. I'm sure the, the character arc in a minute. But you've got Gimli yeah. and Legolas who kind of like round out the the fellowship in terms of like. Yes, they are a comedy duo. I think John Rhys Davies does a wonderful job being a dwarf, given that he's six foot four or whatever tall he is. I did not, I did not know that was him for like the longest time until I started reading up on like IMDb about the cast. I'm like, oh, oh, that's uh, wow, it's, okay, it's Salah from Salah. Indiana Jones. Yeah, I mean that's that's Indiana Jones. I said no uh, camels, Salah. Six camels. <laughs> <laughs> bad date you know, i mean come on absolutely oh can can we can we let's i'd like to take a moment here because um this is in terms of the music and i'm gonna i'm gonna set up chris your your uh your, your kind of piece on this <laughs> because this uh, as we leave rivendell we get my i think it's my favorite piece of music in the entirety of the lord Incorrect. of the rings well We'll come to the that. The Shire cool. music is the best music. Bilbo's it's, birthday. Hold on. Best music it's, ever made. The, it, it, it's titled <laughs> The Ring Goes South. And we get this kind of like fellowship theme. And then what we see on screen is them walking across like mountains and this the, the vista of, of New Zealand. But what we hear is this like, I, I, mean, I can't even describe it to be honest, but the kind of violins going back and forward very quick. And then what I'm going to style as a peak French horn because we get there <laughs> and it's like I just I love it I absolutely love it and I think it's one of the things that um, that this movie just gets absolutely right is the music so Chris I'd like you to give us some of your thoughts as you're from a you know you've got your actual knowledge and experience rather than you're us you're a just professional Chris we're attributing <laughs> a lot of what skills I don't know right about now. professional uh, what but before I talk about the music, though, did you notice that when they were walking across the the mountain, like everybody was like trudging through the snow, except for Legolas, he was on top of the snow. Did you notice that? Amazing. We did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I when I went back and I I'd seen it like you know like fifty million times, and I'm sitting here watching it, I'm like, wait a minute, he's walking on top of the snow. I'm like, oh, I never even noticed that. <laughs> so good, we talked it? about we talked uh, about and, the and, leaves in uh, in. Um, Hobbiton earlier on and like that's kind of the same right. thing where there's a lot in this movie that's kind of there for the fans of the books and nobody else like yeah. you only notice it the fifth time exactly. you watch this movie <laughs> right right in terms of music I mean how Howard Shore 
was was not a name I would think for a film like this. Howard Shore is mainly known for a lot of thrillers and and somewhat odd films because he did work a lot with um, the name is escaping uh, David Cronenberg. I mean that's <laughs> Cronenberg that's a lot is of not someone I would odd. consider Lord of the Rings adjacent. Right. <laughs> and, and like I said, and I'm, I mentioned it before, Howard Shore did you know Seven, and that that is the furthest thing from you know Lord of the Rings, not. A, a big, huge, epic fantasy film to the terms of what Lord of the Rings is. But the very first moment when the score starts up at the very beginning of the movie, you get the ring theme. And that when that starts up, that kind of tells you right there, he knows what he's doing. He, he's going to, he's got this, he's going to take you on this journey. And like you were talking about there where they're, they're crossing the, the mountains and and this, you know, the beautiful horns come in and everything else. That really, to me, that moment right there, because it's funny you mentioned that, that to me right there is the moment that is the heart of the movie. That is the heart of the score right there. That is what tells yeah. the audience, these guys are going on this journey and we're going to take you there in terms of music. Because if you just sit there and listen to the music by itself, and uh, Leslie has... All the you know the original CDs. Now I, I listen to it on Spotify and everything well, else. Did. But I'm talking, it's like a you know entire booklet of CDs. When you open this up and and every track when you start playing it is just one beautiful orchestration after another. You got you know the whole Shire theme, like Dave. That's your favorite thing right there. Absolutely. Again, I never would have thought. You know, that was Howard Shore. I would have thought maybe John Williams or something else. But at the same time, Howard Shore really does have his own voice, his own unique style. And I could not picture this movie with a different composer, to be honest with you. Because he he really did pull it off. It, it This film really does have its own theme. It is when you hear it, you're like, oh, that's Lord of the Rings. Definitely. You know. And it it it's... I mean, I... I I don't know how many times I can say that it's just a, such a beautiful score. The orchestrations that he did. Um, I, I wish I had more research on this, but uh, I was, I was finding it difficult trying to find a lot of stuff about what they did with this film. Yeah. And, and him and Peter Jackson really had a good friendship, you know, because of this movie, because they were supposed to work together again on King Kong, but they were having a difference of, you know, opinion on the score. That's when they brought uh, James Newton Howard again, but they, they ended up, you know, I guess they were still friends because when The Hobbit came around, Howard Shore came back. And uh, I think for the for the new TV series that they're talking about bringing out on Amazon, they're they're talking about trying to get Howard Shore to come back. And, I think and that, that, that right there is a testament. It's an integral part of the movie, isn't it? Like, it really sometimes, is. Sometimes when you watch a film... The score is kind of something that's happening in the background and it's fine. and Or it even is good, but it's like, but I cannot divorce the two in my mind. The score to this movie right. is this movie. Uh, I think especially because of like the use, I think it's, I think it's leitmotif. Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about, but like the, the, the yep. use of... Um, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Of, of like individual themes for individual either characters or situations or whatever else. And so, you know, you say the Shire theme and you know straight away what that is. You say the Rings theme, you know what the Fellowship thing. All these things are just built and it's like this, it's like this layer cake of, and, and there's so much going on mm -hmm. and they, they, they vary the themes so much that you kind of get sad versions of, what, of, of the Fellowship and you get kind of heroic versions of the Fellowship theme. 
it's all of that, and and you, I just I can't even I can't even um, think where you would begin in bringing all that together. Like, uh, well, it's, it's, that's what's so great about what he did because he he had the Shire theme, and he would just bring in little elements of that to kind of when whenever there was like a Hobbit on screen, mm. and you know he would just kind of like you know just to let you know that they're from the Shire. You know, this is their this is what they're from, and you know with Aragon he would have a more of a uh, uh, brass sound, more heroic sounding, more regal or royalty sounding to him, and uh, and then you have the overall, the fellowship theme, you know, and and you know Gandalf would even have his certain sounds, you know, when when, and one of my favorite pieces when the orcs are introduced and that you know the, the choir coming in with the the brass, the brass is one thing when it comes in and you get this you know. <laughs> And you get their theme. It was so strong and powerful watching that movie. It was the one time I was sitting there, I would start rewinding it just so I could hear that. And this is before, you know, I had the soundtracks. And I would just start rewinding it. I would keep listening to that because it was so powerful and it was so big. And it was something unlike anything we'd have heard at that time. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I still I still love it. Because when, when I was going back listening to it for this here, and uh, that popped up, and I was like, yes! And I was driving <laughs> to work, and I started, started like, you know, pounding on the studio wheel going, yes, I love this part. <laughs> Let's kill some I can orcs. only imagine what the people... Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine what the people like listening to me as I'm driving by, because, you know, I would have my windows down. And, <laughs> and so I've got Lord of the Rings blasting in my car, and I would, I listen to it loud, too. So, like, it's like, is that Lord of the Rings? <laughs> <laughs> That's what every every Jody deeds is. I think some some real you know. I, I don't. I, it's a funny. There's a funny geographical thing there where um, I also was listening to the soundtrack of this movie in my car on the way to work uh, this week. Uh, I did not have the windows down because I would have frozen to death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was cold. It was cold here too. It was cold for us, anyways. Um, but yeah, I, I still did it. <laughs> power anyway, to you. Just, just so I can have Lord of the Rings blasting out the window. <laughs> and, in, and in terms of your experience, Chris, like where does? Because I can imagine when you're composing a movie and you've and you've got like I don't know how long you usually would take to to, to work on a film, but it feels like oh, from what I've what I'm reading anyway, that he was Howard Shaw was like involved with with this from the very early stages of production, and I think that's one thing for me that really you can see the impact of because. It's not just like he came in and, and obviously this is how most films are made. The, the the composer works on on the on the on what's there. He's building like this world. He's building the music of mm-hmm. Middle Earth, and not necessarily just for this movie. And I think I just wonder how that compares to how you would usually um, kind of work on a, a film. Well, it it really depends on the, the type of film because there, there's so many different moments. I've I you know me personally, I, I've had some films. You know, I would I had no deadline. It was like all right, just you know go for it, and just start scoring the movie, and just go from there. And then there's also been moments where you, you've got a month, you've got a month to score a two hour <laughs> film, and you know if there's any changes, guess what? You've got to make the changes too. But e- even like a big Hollywood elites like Michael Giacchino, who scored like you know the J.J. Abrams Star Trek on Rogue One, they originally had uh, Alexander Desplat uh, as the composer. But he was like, go because his score was not working for the film. So they brought Michael Giacchino on. He had three weeks, three weeks to score Rogue One. I I mean, that, I can't that, even imagine that just Chris. blows my. 
that that blows my mind, especially as a composer. I'm just like, there's no way, uh, uh, you know, film with that. So yeah, with this film here, Howard Shore had to be involved. You know, they, I'm pretty sure he was involved in the script process mm-hmm. because, like you were saying, he was giving this universe its voice. And that's basically what the score is. It's giving the film its backbone, its voice. It's because you don't understand the the world unless you have the score kind of you know enveloping you almost. So yeah, I I, I me personally, I would have done the same thing. I would have been involved in the very beginning. And there have been a lot of films I've worked on that I have been involved in the very beginning, and and it does help because you want to understand. The story, the emotion, the feeling, you want to understand each character. You want to drive home their personalities. I mean, the the performance and everything else is one thing, but if you don't have the emotion from the score backing it, or, or lack of score backing it, you know, having the score come in at the right moments even, you know, it, it really will... I've said it once, I'll say it again, it really will make or break the film, and you know, the, he, he, yeah, I, I cannot imagine how much time he put into, uh, background research, working on it, just, you know, it, it is insane to even think about. But it must have I think just I was, been, like, I, a phenomenal workload, and I think also, like, like you said, Chris, like, it is the backbone and the soul of this movie, is the score, and I think it also adds so much to the scenes and like it punctuates so many scenes in such a way that I think if it had just been shot with um just as a comparison, we watched Gladiator last week, um, which is a, a Hans Zimmer <laughs> score, which is essentially the Pirates of yep. the Caribbean score, but in a gladiator movie. Via 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 <laughs> Gustav Holtz as well, stolen yeah. from the Mars. And the yeah, 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 yeah. So like watching that, where like the score's fun, but ultimately are actually distracting, to watching <laughs> Fellowship, where right. I think it's just so entwined with why this movie works and why individual scenes work, and even in the more even in the minds of Moria, like the individual beats of the score kind of like punctuate or increase tension or kind of like warn you of things that are happening in like in such a symbiotic way is the word I'm going to use. Now, again, like right. so many films, I think with scores, I'm not the best person to notice them. But with this movie, I'm like, I cannot imagine this movie without this music. No, no, I, I can't either. Uh, and like on our show, like I said, we, we have the three different criterias. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, those score works for the film that, you know, uh, overall, what could have been changed differently? As a composer, I wouldn't have changed. I wouldn't change anything. Everything about this score just works, in my opinion. It, it's one of those scores that if you take it away, you don't have a film, at all. Totally, I agree one hundred percent. It's uh, no, it's, it is something, isn't it? And uh, you know, as as the movie progresses, we get to see more. But the the minds of Moria stuff, I think, it's a great example. A great example of like where it feels it feels as claustrophobic the music does as as the characters one of the most um, one of the most tense scenes in and again like i cannot stress enough how much this first movie is the absolute far and away best of all these movies but the minds of moria scene is kind of like one of the most tense scary scenes that even when you've read the book and seen it before you're still like clutching the edge of your chair like 
oh god i hope everyone's okay um because this is this um should should we should we get into the should we get so should we we start getting into the rest of the, the the plot then and and that and that you know like the decision making of going into the mines always seems like a bad idea it seems like a bad idea straight from the start and and then gandalf the piece of shit is like let the let the ring bearer decide and you're like this guy this guy hasn't left the, the shire ever and you're making him we, make Sam, the decision we have all worked with someone C- could like you gandalf imagine? We've all worked with someone who's <laughs> like, you, imagine Frodo's you know what, like, you know what? You there's like, no you know, good Frodo's decisions like... to be made here. No one's coming out of this with a promotion. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass all responsibility on to Delegate. some Patsy who's going to get sacked in three weeks. Delegate. What do you think, Frodo? I mean, could you imagine Frodo? Like, poor Frodo, man. He's just like, just sitting there. He's like, we're going to let the ring bird decide. What? <laughs> we're, we're, huh? It's it's uh, and then it goes and then it goes exactly as bad as Gandalf thought it would, <laughs> which is the other thing. I, I do. And you I, see how bad it's going to be from Gandalf's face when he turns around when Frodo's just like, "I'll do it," and he's like, "Oh, yeah." Why did you ask him then? And, and it's like, "Oh, this is going to be bad." And it's like Gandalf's like, "All right, since you said it, it's you know, all right, what are we doing, buddy?" <laughs> and and this and this is like where you get to. Obviously, you've got the goblins, and they're they're like menacing enough. And I love the bit in the in the oh, in the where they're reading the the book, and the you know the drums, the drums. They they keep on coming. We and cannot get out. We cannot get we out. Cannot and you're like, out. oh my god! This scene, I think, more than almost any other in this particular movie, I think, adds to the. It makes this world feel a lot older than than obviously like it's all invented and made up, but. It makes this world feel a lot older than we had previously been led to believe. It really kind of imparts that elfish, kind of dwarfish, like hundreds of thousands of years, kind of like stuff is happening and we are now inhabiting this world that has been here for but years and years and years. We we see Balin though, don't we, in The Hobbit, you know, or we, or we would have known about him. And you think, well, Balin's a character that I would know. And then it's like, actually... Dead. Everything, everything is covered in cobwebs. All the, all the flesh has decayed from these skeletons. Like this is, and I think, I think we've, we've maybe worked it out. It's like twenty five years or something. And, and, and Gimli didn't know. It's, He's like um, red meat from the bone, roaring fires. <laughs> and then twenty minutes later, all of his family's dead. I think it's sixty or seventy in the books. Sorry to be the, the Lord of the Rings nerd here. Oh, here we go. Someone has to be this guy. Uh, in the books, I think. <laughs> Uh, Bilbo's birthday is 60 or 70 years after the Hobbit book and then in the books there's another 17 years between that and when Frodo sets out so we're talking probably 75 years since the Hobbit adventure just to be mm. again oh, just right. for nobody okay. but like to be clear yeah so like when we're when we're in this when we're going through um Moria and it's like it it, it seems to me like it's just this compounding um things are going wrong <laughs> and like we have we we have to <laughs> yeah the, the fellowship is just going from one thing to another and they have a cave troll and all this stuff <laughs> like it's just it's just it's so much fun and it's it's a real i mean you'd call this an action set piece wouldn't you you know and it's also by the way yeah terrifying yeah. i don't know if you guys like uh have this Maybe not everyone has this like incredible, incredible claustrophobia for being underground that I do. <laughs> um, but like, I would honestly, if I was in a cave, I would be absolutely terrified. Surprising, considering how much oh, how man. much you look like a dwarf, Dave. It really is. <laughs> yeah, I'm taller than a dwarf, but yes, how much I look like a dwarf. Um, 
But honestly, like, there's just something like, about all that rock over my head. I'd be like, uh, well, this is already, like, not my best day. I'm already not having a good oh, day man. being underground. I, I would have loved to have acted in this movie because, that, I mean, you can tell how much fun they had just doing this. I mean, like, uh, what was it? Uh, Orlando, Orlando Bloom did most of his own stunts. He even broke a rib mm. doing yeah. this movie. I mean, that's dedication right there. I mean, you can just, uh, he, was, he was probably more like like a little kid on set. It was like, you know what? I'm going to do this. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I think they filmed for um, a year, by the way. There was a whole year of sequential yeah. filming. And before Good that, Lord. they did six to eight weeks of like combat training and riding training and everything like that. I can imagine like we've all had jobs. Like if I worked with someone in that, you know, confines for 12 months, we'd be pretty good friends or hate each other by the end of it, yeah. you know? Yeah. You can really see. Exactly. Yeah. Because they, they had everyone together, I think. They had the fellowship, at least, together. And the, so you kind of get that, you do get that feel. The hobbits were all kind of as a group. And then they brought the other guys in maybe a couple of weeks later. And 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 this is this is a good segue, actually, to one of, one of the negative things about this movie is that they had um, Liv Tyler Arwen brought in like right at the very end she didn't really feel involved which is kind of a good metaphor for other women in this film because we get what <laughs> i'm gonna interrupt here sam what women <laughs> yeah kate blanchett live <laughs> tyler in this and oh is there anyone else is there anyone else other than i mean when we were discussing not, not it the other f- day the ones we came up with you've got Liv tyler playing arwen You've got the Rohirrim woman, whose name is Eowyn, Eowyn. Who, the actor, someone would dig up for me. Uh, you've got the other elf, uh, who again... I think, it was named... Miranda, I think it was Miranda Otto, Yeah, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've got the other elf woman. Uh, we charitably... Shelob is technically a woman, so you've got Shelob the Spider <laughs> in one of the later movies. Uh, and the fifth woman in this movie, these movies is Rosie. And I'm not being flippant or like trying to... like. You know, push the patriarchy up because it doesn't need it. But like these movies, partly because of the books that Tolkien wrote, and partly because they were movies like there are no women in these movies and they have zero impact. It's mad. It really is. It's quite extraordinary. I think it's one of those things that is that's really dated. And I know that's I know there's a source material there that they kind of have to go. I know I understand that, but I also think like. Come on, let's. I mean, to be fair, Arwen's is is a, a a character with agency. She's doing her own thing. She is like the wife of Aragorn, so that's kind of you know not. But, but I just think this it really does stand out. We have, we must mention it. The other thing we've got to mention in terms of representation as well is if you go onto YouTube and type in um, the uh, spoken lines from peoples of color in Lord of the Rings, for three movies, it's. <laughs> 50 seconds long <laughs> and they're and they're all orcs i mean i mean ugh. if if there's not a better again a better metaphor for like where this film sits in terms of so so you know we sit and like oh this is great but actually you there must, there's a whole sway of people who just think this film's not for me this film is oh, yeah. completely that movie with all those no white folks doing things like i would totally understand that opinion like, like you say sam and part of that is the historical nature of the books, and et cetera, et cetera. But we've yeah. seen other things where we introduce a broader range of ethnicities into a film, and and it's fine, or into an like you know um, a a historic you know a, a traditional story, and it's fine, and it's okay. And like 
But you do feel like part that. of that's the New Zealand of this all. Like there aren't even any like native New Zealanders in these movies. They're all just, you know, white yeah. people. <laughs> I know it's really it's, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> and hopefully that's something that they remedy in the series that we have. We yeah. have you know a, a black Hobbit, and that's fine. And that's not something that we need to talk about as a thing. It's just a thing. Like that. That's ho- let's hope we have yeah. that more because. You know, it's it's just more represent. You know, more representation yeah. is a better thing, isn't it? So let's go. Yeah. No, go I, on, I completely agree. Uh, no, I was gonna say I just completely agree. But one thing I want to mention before we completely go on, I just want to say that Kate Blanchett terrified me when she first showed up because she's she scary was, as like, shit. Looking at Frodo <laughs> with that evil stare, and and she's talking to him through her mind. That that freaked me out. <laughs> I yeah. just want to mention that before we go too much further. I was just like, that was the one moment I'm like, oh, she's wonderful. <laughs> she is. There's also a good point yeah, there. She, Chris, was. she was. great. There's kind of like a reality informing the film there, where the first couple of scenes we obviously see Arwen in the dream sequence bits. The first scene where she kind of like finds Aragorn. Uh, you see, there's a scene. I think it's Viggo Morgenstein, Morgenstein with a with a sword to his neck, and you hear um, Arwen say something, and like it's oh, that was mm-hmm. obviously filmed before she was cast because she was cast so late. Because then we cut to a totally differently lit shot of Arwen, and it's kind of like this isn't the same place at all. It's kind of the one point right. in the movie where the editing was like. You could have done better here for me. Like the one yeah. bit in the movie. I don't know if you guys mm. noticed. I never noticed that before, actually. That's a new one. I have to go I, back I Watch out really for it next time you watch. Um, I mean, it's, it doesn't ruin the movie yeah. or anything, but it is interesting to see the lines. What, what about this Balrog then? Because this is like, this is this is the probably the emotional peak of the movie. You know, you've got you've got this massive creature, which looks amazing. <laughs> Sean Bean dying would like to argue yeah. with you. Well, I'll come back to that. We've we've got this huge creature in the Balrog, which looks incredible, absolutely incredible for two thousand one. We've got Gandalf doing his thing, and 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 let's just take a moment again, appreciation of Ian McKellen. But he is standing not on a bridge in underground, you know. He's standing in a studio surrounded by blue screens or green <laughs> screens. He's got some guy eating his lunch, a sandwich, you know, like much, and he's and he's spitting food everywhere behind the camera you've got lighting you've got all of these people <laughs> and he he has got to dig deep and channel and he's got a channel you shall not pass and it not sound cheesy and shit like that's amazing <laughs> that's an am- it's an amazing it really piece was. Of acting. you shall not Pass. I mean, that is just like he just really dug deep for that one, and I mean, he just put everything into it right then. I want, I want to know how many takes he had to do for that. <laughs> I bet, that. I bet it's less takes than you think, because I think that Ian McKellen is somebody who's like a stage actor by trade, and mm. um, I think maybe like in that profession, you have to maybe sell it a bit more than you do on movies. And I think that getting someone with that pedigree for this movie to play Gandalf. Like you're automatically mm-hmm. elevating the rest of the cast, you know, and I think that um, Christopher Lee, I think, does a similar job of like every scene he's in is like is just on another level because like acting is the we word haven't we mentioned Christopher use. Lee yet. My we God. haven't even mentioned Christopher Lee. Yeah. That's the first mention of Christopher Lee. And he met, uh, yeah, he met Tolkien. He was one of the only yeah. cast members. Tolkien had said in real he could life. play Gandalf in the film. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, 
That's amazing. Which is mad, but, the, I, but I, I do love I do love this. I think it is emotional, Pete, because we, you know when, when we leave um, we leave the the caves, and we get when we get this lovely like um, choir singing over the, this this little gentle piece of music. Oh yeah, and they're all looking distraught, you know, and Legolas looking around because he doesn't even know what death is really, and because uh, <laughs> he lives, he, elves live forever in this live, universe. Uh, every, everyone kind of just looking despondent. What's everybody sad about? I don't know. What, yeah, yeah what, what's everybody sad about? I don't what know. happened what's to him? Surely he'll here? just get back uh, up. Oh, like there's just I, I just love it I just love this and it's, it's so touching it's so it's so affecting because you've got you've got this weight you know this this uh, this anchor for the fellowship has been that's been broken now by um, by Gandalf's death I think it's a brilliant piece and then all of that kind of the unraveling begins then doesn't it because then we get you know skipping ahead a little bit we get to the um, the, the stuff with Boromir and his kind of fall from grace and then re- re- redemption, which I think is really effective. Well, Sean Bean is the Definitely. best, as I'm sure Chris has mentioned and I will continue to mention. <laughs> yeah, we, we already, already established that. Sean Bean's awesome. So. <laughs> but I think that in this movie where up until this point we kind of get like some Boromir stuff but not loads and, and this is reflective of the book and obviously like you said, Chris, you've read the book. I know Sam has, but God, I probably can't remember it. Um... <laughs> But, like, Boromir is a character who kind of, like, he has this really, really, like, phenomenal 200 pages of book and, like, 30 minutes of movie where he kind of has this incredible arc of, you know, the, the frailties of man and the 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 inherent corruption of man coupled yes. with the nobility mm-hmm. and the self-sacrifice. Like, in such a short arc, which I think absolutely pays for itself in terms of like a you know a character moment of this movie but like at the same time it's just phenomenally well acted and well scripted and well shot like the peaks and troughs of that character are probably more extreme than any other character in this series yeah i i completely agree i mean and and you know hats off to sean bean to be able to make us feel all that with you know the shorter amount of time that we see him because you do, you you feel every bit of that, you know. You, you see every bit of it where he's tempted by the ring, and then you know where his his failure and his sadness that he succumbed to the evil of the ring. You see all of that right then and there in that short amount of time that when all this happens, you know. And yeah, so and he realizes it definitely, and, and like from a story point yeah. of view like he realizes it and you get that regret and that repentance and the way that he dies and spoilers i guess sean bean dies right. in this movie like he dies in all movies um <laughs> and tv series um but you get that moment where he kind of like sacrifices himself to save mary and pippin in like a like that self um awareness that sean bean that the, the boromir character has of like I failed the test. Like I was tested with the ring and you I failed up. and I would have taken it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to redeem myself and I'm going to do my very best to protect the rest of the fellowship. And actually that failing and then, and then still standing up and still like facing adversity is actually more noble than, do you know what I mean? Than if he was an, Ad- do you know, than an right. elf. Adversity. If he passed this test in the yeah, first adversity, place. Adversity in this case being three arrows to the chest. That's that's university. Is there a more is there a more noble, more earned kind of like it's silly, but more earned kind of like more epic 
like it's death the last in one. Cinema. It's the last one when you get when he's been shot. The, the, oh, the, oh, oh. And and he get, and like, he just he has and one then, more. Yeah, you get this one in slow motion. Was yeah, that's yeah, it. Exactly. That's it. He has one more in him. He has one more, and he and he goes and he manages to get you know just to save the the the, the little ones. They've got the little ones and his ashen face <laughs> on the floor, and you're just like, oh my. So I actually think you're right, Dave. This is the emotional light of the movie, isn't it? Because Sean Bean's death with Aragorn, you know, doing this great job after he's chopped off. Uh, is it uh, alerts? Isn't it? Yeah, alerts his head. Something like that. Yeah. Like chef's oh, kiss. Oh yeah, I didn't know his name. <laughs> but he, oh, I mean, okay. he has a, that's a great character. The great character. Who's you know, I think made up for this yes. film. But like the way he's got the arrow and everything is just. Yeah, I don't. I don't. This is peak cinema, isn't it? Really is. And it's the bravery as well. And we, as we come towards the end of the movie, the bravery to have, like we we on the podcast, Chris, we talk quite a lot about like um, traditional sort of uh, storytelling beats, and usually the all is lost moment comes kind of like at the end of the second act or the beginning of the third act, and then we kind of have the redemption and the happy ending in the third act. This being part of a trilogy, the all is lost moment is the end of this movie. Like this movie ends <laughs> on a real fucking like, yeah. All oh, right, we failed. We yeah. fucked it up. Like we we had to destroy the ring, and we haven't done it. And the whole <laughs> the, fellowship the, is broken. The fellowship failed after twenty five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we still got a long way to go. And we're gonna have to walk the entire way. Yeah, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, but, but see, but, that's that's where I think, and it's the genius of the of the source material as well, is that once once they're dead, I mean, everyone is everyone is 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 completely out of it. The the, the two hobbits, the Merry and Pippin, are gone. Boromir's dead. You've got these three guys left, and then Frodo is off on in, by himself. Is what is what we think is going to happen? And we haven't really talked about Sean Astin. We haven't really talked about Samwise because, it, but but he's so important to this story, isn't he? He's so important that that he was there. Mm-hmm. And Frodo says, "I can't. I you know I couldn't imagine doing this without you, Sam, because you need you need the the him there and him running down into the water, like oh." Sean Astin, like you are just a treasure. You are a treasure with your wig on. You just look amazing. And he's, I made a promise, a promise, Mr. Frodo. And you're like, oh, I love this. I'm so, I'm so upset. I'm crying already. Sean Astin is is a, is a funny actor. Obviously, Chris, you're probably old enough to remember Sean Astin from The Goonies. And uh, we did. Oh um, yeah, definitely. That's oh, like one Sam, of my what was favorite that movie movies. called? Encino um, Man. Encino Man. Do you remember Encino Man with Brendan Fraser? Oh yeah, we did. The, oh, we yeah, watched I love that, that movie one too. for the podcast, uh, which is like Sean Astin as a teenager, who's not that far away from Sean Astin in this movie. And obviously, more recently, we've had Sean Astin in Stranger Things as a, as a, a full blown like yeah, I was just about to mention that. Yeah, um, and it's kind of like it's and, crazy and you to still watch love him, career. and you still I, love him, you still and, love him because there's this. Sean Astin's career is built on the fact that Sean Astin has this like likability about him as a person, and like these Lord of the Rings movies, I think are built on um, like Sean Astin uh, as Samwise being like so nice and innocent and like pleasant and likable and having this like pluck. And the end of this movie, and we get some of this beforehand, but the end of this movie leading into the next two movies is kind of like the it's Sean Astin like. He ain't heavy. He's my Frodo. Kind of like is the theme of of their relationship, isn't it? He's yeah. He he I really just, has the heart. Yeah. 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 And 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 again, without that, 
and it's a testament to Tolkien for figuring that out and not just letting Frodo walk around Mordor by himself, which would be rather dull. But having the, the camaraderie and and the and you know and and then obviously skipping ahead to the last movie when Sam picks up Frodo and carries him up the mountain, like just I'm gone, I'm gone, tears streaming down my face. Like this is just beautiful. And it's the one thing I actually love with with this film is that we get lots of like male displays of emotion. And it's not something that you'd expect from in, from the early two thousand in two thousand and one. Like yeah, like people masculinity are, doesn't really exist in these movies, and it's kind of wonderful. Men now. are crying, and that's okay, and that's a nice thing to see in films. <laughs> like you know, not 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 Aragorn. He's he's not doing that. But every, all all the hobbits are like emotive, and that's nice. That's nice. I like that. And and then as we you know as we the final shots of this of this film, um, when when the two the two hobbits are kind of looking at each other with 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 a sense of like god at least we've got each other you know which is a nice well, message it's to not have. even that sam it's it's yeah. that samwise is chasing after frozo i'm calling him samwise to differentiate from you who i could keep referring to as sam. <laughs> um and as samwise is chasing frodo down and he's drowning and frodo is like obviously this is like literally the whole world depends on me destroying this ring i have to go by myself and he can't let his friend die and his friend is willing to die to like you know you need me and it's this kind of like this codependency which i think they sell really well in this scene and maybe a little bit earlier as well where like the hobbits are children but they're also men and it's this dichotomy which is really hard to spell out on paper that i think peter jackson and the other the other people behind this like down to the cinematographers and the makeup artists and everyone the costume guys everyone absolutely nailed the relationship between Sam and Frodo and like this codependent sort of, you know, ersatz marriage in some ways that kind of like works perfectly, which we only get a taste of at the end of this movie, but I think is a huge part of the second and third movies. Definitely. Well Definitely. I, I completely agree. And like uh, one piece of trivia though, Sean Aston gained 30 pounds for this role. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, you can tell. <laughs> That's commitment, isn't it? Someone I said could, yeah, fat exactly. hobbits, and he was straight down to McDonald's. He was like, "I've got this," and like, I can respect that. <laughs> yep, I'm good. I'm good. I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the movie, isn't it? Like, I, I think there's, you know, I suppose if there's any any additional thoughts that we've all got, but for me, I don't know how much I can praise this film. And there are there are some things that I don't particularly. Like, and most of it's in the second and third movies. You know, there. Are, there's, there's, it, that's when you we kind of like haven't mentioned how obnoxious Orlando Bloom is. I think because he isn't very obnoxious in this movie. No, wait till the second no. movie. Helm's Deep when he's skateboarding <laughs> down the stairs. Yeah, I was just about to say that when he goes surfing down the stairs oh, on the shield. Him and Gimli are comparing like, kill counts like you just played around on Call of Duty, and it's like I know. <laughs> I've got six. <laughs> yeah. but 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 that to be fair though that's that's, diff- that's different movies let's not get into hour 17 movie. on 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 movies two and three but in terms of this film though i think this is i think i think it's my favorite film ever i really do and i've i've i don't like saying things as definitive as that but i really think i can't think of a movie that i just love watching so much as this and after 20 years i think that's a real achievement um we had the vhs of this when we were kids um for some reason my dad had bought my sister it as a birthday present in the most baffling like dad move in the world 
um, and she hated it. But we boys, I've got three brothers, and we just used to sit and watch it like every single week, like without. Honestly, this and Titanic, as much as I hesitate to say, are the two movies we watched the most in my household. Uh, and watching it again, I was reminded, like, actually, if they'd only ever made this movie, I think we'd still think of it as this phenomenal, phenomenal film. Um, Chris, any final thoughts? The one, the one thing I kept saying, you know, about the score and the film itself is beautiful. And twenty years later, it still is. It, it's not one moment in this movie where you you can't say this is just gorgeous to watch. This is amazing. I mean, just down. And when I say gorgeous, amazing, I don't mean just the visuals, the score, the storytelling, the acting. Everything is just so well done that it's still amazing to watch this movie. There are moments. There are moments. Um, you know, some of the some of some things look a little off, but that's also because it's twenty years ago, and there's some digital effects don't really hold up. But it doesn't take you out of the film. You're still involved in it, and the score is one of those things that you still sit there and listen to, and still love it every single minute of it. So, absolutely, Chris, I couldn't agree more. Uh, this has been a probably. I would hesitate to say the best movie we've covered, and admittedly we haven't done Goodfellas yet, so um, we'll wait for that. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've listened to a lot of our back catalogue, Chris, but I am like the biggest Mafia movie guy you can possibly imagine, so like this not being a Mafia movie is kind of like one of the big flaws of it. Um, <laughs> but, but as we wrap up, uh, I want to say massive thank you, Chris, for uh, coming on. Absolutely. Uh, Obviously, we haven't actually mentioned that you're in America, which is in different time zone, uh, which obviously, yeah. like, logistically is a... I mean, what time is it where you are now? Oh, well, right now it is almost 3 o'clock my time, so... <laughs> right, well, it's almost 9 p.m. here, so, like, it's a huge... Yeah, see. It's a huge bonus for you to do it in the, like, in the early afternoon so that we didn't have to do it at 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah. So, massive thank you there, and... Maybe if you could tell our listeners where they can find you, maybe a little bit more about your podcast and et cetera, et cetera. Guys, this has been fun. And our, our podcast, you can find us pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, you know, Spotify, Apple, you know, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to podcasts at, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, just type in measuring the score podcast on Twitter. We're at measure the score. You can also send us an email at measuring the score at gmail.com. Uh, you know, we always ask listeners to, hey, if you guys got a score or a movie you want us to talk about, send us an email or something, or just general thoughts, uh, you know, about this episode here or just, you know, any of our stuff. Yeah, feel free to contact us. Uh, mainly get us on Twitter. That's where uh, that's where I'm mainly at. Uh, Leslie, whenever she's here, she does the Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Chris, we're men of a certain age, so like the social media we're on is somewhat limited. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but you should. I'm, ve- I'm very limited as well. Yeah, but you should absolutely check out Chris's podcast. Uh, Chris and Leslie have like a great back and forth, and uh, I most recently listened to your Prestige episode. Uh, which I think was a, a really fun podcast to listen to and actually maybe probably one of the ones you've done with a less interesting score, which was kind of fun to listen yeah. to because you talk about the movie a lot more, uh, which was good uh, for me personally. But, um, you know, that's that insider <laughs> knowledge, which you don't get on our podcast, not all the time, but Chris certainly has. Um, and in wrapping up on our side, obviously, if you're listening to this, you've already found us. 
Um, but you can find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook and etc. etc. at imaginarypodcast uh, at gmail.co.uk. Uh, Sam will correct me in 32 seconds that that's not the right email address. Uh, but we're at imaginarypod on Twitter. Um, and I will say, as a last thing, kind of uh, if you like the podcast, leave us a review we'd really enjoy that we'd really get a kind of like a thing out of that especially after we offended the entire of australia last week um, <laughs> we really so... do need the uh, support don't we yeah we need no, this has been amazing. publicity yeah this is amazing. thanks a lot chris for for being here and you know what i'm going to do right now i'm going to go watch two towers that's what i'm going to do that's i think the, i think i'm going to watch step. goodfellas but that's that's more about me than it is about this movie <laughs> <laughs>